Welcome to Talking Water with GMW, where we discuss all things water with some of the most interesting people across GMW and the water industry. This month, we are joined by Water Quality Coordinator, Bianca Attlee. Bianca explains how we measure the quality of water in our storages and the different factors that influence this. Bianca also discusses how we manage blue-green algae, as well as some of the common misconceptions held about the bacteria. Our next episode will be released on our website in the first week of February. The first thing I wanted to just have a chat with you about was how did you end up at Golden Murray Water and what's your background? Like, how did you end up here? So I graduated university and I got a job straight out of university in an algae lab. So that's where I learned how to look at algae under a microscope. It's a very specialist task because it's really hard to tell the difference. Even when you're looking at it under a microscope, they are so small to know the difference between what is a blue-green algae, what is harmless algae, and what is even dirt or even tissue from the tissue that you've used to wipe the slide that you're looking at on. So it's a very specialist task, and that's the, the job was at SA Water, but it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. And... Another graduate who was my best friend, she found it very hard to get a job, but she eventually got a job at God Murray Water. So when a job came up at God Murray Water, and since my friend was already here, it made the move less daunting. So I moved over to here and I loved the job and that was 20 years ago now. Yeah. Now I suppose what I would like to know, what's your, what do you do? What's your work? I coordinate all the sampling that we do. We sample for many things. We sample for blue-green algae because it has the potential to make people sick and that's an operational thing where we want to know the results straight away and so we have that part of my job where I'm reacting to things. But then the other part of my job is having the sampling program for a long-term monitoring program. So this program has been in since 1997 and we need to make sure that Every single sample that's taken can be relied upon. I have to think about when we're taking a sample today, if I don't work here anymore and it's 20 years' time, that the person who's looking at that data, if it's, say, a really high value, that they can be assured that that value has been looked into and that they can say that that was a real value, that that is, you know, that is something that the data can be relied upon to look at, you know, long-term trends to see if water quality is getting better or worse in our region. Mm, so is it? It's a big question. Well, <laughs> so three years ago, we developed a water quality index, which we never had at Gomery Water. And it's actually something that we developed that really isn't done anywhere in Australia, really. So we developed it and we looked at some other countries. And it's basically, it's an index which gives us a single score out of 100 to say how good the water quality is somewhere. We do an annual report on water quality where it's got tables and tables of information of of comparing water quality to guidelines. And it's really hard for a normal person that's not a scientist to go in and look at that and then make some determination about what's actually happening water quality-wise, whereas our water quality index actually has three components in it. So we've got guideline values that say, what is good water quality? And so how, how many times is it good water quality in a year? Does it meet the targets of the year? Then it looks at, okay, 
each individual time we take a sample, does it meet the target? And then it looks at if it doesn't meet the target, how much does it exceed the target by? It actually does all that automatically. We've made an automatic process where we just put in the data for the last year and then it gives us a score out of 100. And then we can rate the storages against each other. We produce a map which says the different scores for each of these storages. So this is where what water quality is doing. And then we can look at those maps now since 2018. Every year we produce another map and, and it shows, you know, has water quality increased or, or like declined in the previous year. So it's good to look at that year's score and, and previous mm. year's score. So, so I think it's a, you know, I think it's been a great initiative by our team to make something that is more easily understood yeah. by others. And now when we go talk to the storage staff, they have competition to see whose ah. water quality ah. is the best. I was just thinking when you're talking about that, what are some other things that make water quality either good or bad apart from algae? Is there anything else that kind of impacts? Sure. One thing with that water quality index, what is really obvious is when you look at the map of Gob Murray water, we've got the scores on there. So we've got the eastern part of our region, which has got Dartmouth and William Hovel and Buffalo. And they're all catchments which have forests in them and they're not in public ownership generally. So because they're forests, they're a more natural type of system. The water quality there is very, very good. When you move west across our region, you get more and more clearing of the land upstream of our storages. You get more farming and other such land uses. And that really impacts on our storages because our storages are just if you think of it, it's just the, the sink or the, the bowl of water at the end of all of that land. And so really doing anything to try and improve water quality at our storages, trying to do it on the land just around it, isn't going to be as effective as what is actually coming in when there's a rain event. What is that rain running mm-hmm. over? What is that running into and how is that getting into our storages? So that's one of the man-made things that can affect Water quality is the removal of trees and the farming practices that are occurring. Then there are other natural events that can affect water quality. So if we have a bushfire in our catchments above our storages, that can impact on water quality by when there's a rain event bringing in massive amounts of dirt or even the fact if there is not much water or too much water. So those are the other, you know, natural things that that can affect water quality in our region. Mm, Stirring things up, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about blue-green algae, which is an interesting kind of algae that actually I don't really know that much about it. So it is good to kind of have well, a chat. Well, I can tell you, I can yeah. tell you that it's actually not an algae. So the common name for blue-green algae is blue-green algae, but that's actually sort of a, a wrong name. Like if I was a proper scientist, like when we go to conferences, proper scientists call it cyanobacteria. So they're actually bacteria, they're not algae so algae is a plant means it's a plant and plants have nucleus bacteria don't have nucleus and that's what blue-green algae is actually a bacteria because it doesn't have a nucleus and it's just photosynthetic so photosynthetic means it uses sunlight to grow so that's it's a photosynthetic bacteria so that's why normally it gets lumped in with the other things that makes use sunlight to grow because the other bacteria that people may have heard of such as a coli they don't use sunlight to grow. They use the 
the humans or the animals that they're living in to grow. That's how they grow. And once they get into the water bacteria, they stop growing because they can't grow or or live in something that's not the body temperature. So that's the difference between the blue-green algae. It's bacteria that have gotten around that and they use the photosynthesis or sunlight to grow. Yeah. So because we have sort of ebbs and flows with the, the growth of blue-green algae, how, how are we managing it? How do we manage it within our water systems and our storages? So that's a really loaded question. So basically... Um, <laughs> So well, we can't really manage it. How do we, I suppose? Yeah, no, no, that's, but we do manage it. So once, so I guess the thing is, is that there's low levels of blue-green algae in the water all the time. Yeah. We can't stop the algae or predict whether or not they're going to grow up into large numbers. We just can't predict that. That's why we have to take samples and we take samples regularly because we need to see what the levels are doing because there's no way of knowing what they're doing without actually taking a sample. Once there is high levels of algae, then the way that we manage it at Godmurray Water is to firstly warn our customers and the public that it's there so that they're aware of it and they can change their practices in the actual water themselves, knowing that we can't remove it from the water. What we can do with our lakes, when you release the water from near the surface, that's where most of the algae are. So if we can go deeper into the water, then we avoid sending the algae downstream. We don't want to create what we would call a regional bloom. So once the algae leaves something that we manage and we send it down the river and there's multiple other people that get affected, it's called a regional bloom. It's a big process. More people get involved. And, you know, we don't want to cause the algae to go downstream. We want to try and keep it in yeah. if we can. There is, There will be times where it will be unavoidable then we may have that issue, but that's our management. As Our management is to try where we can yeah. to limit its spread as opposed to being to actually remove. Yeah, and I think that that is some confusion that maybe some of our customers or some of our recreational users have that in some way we can stop or, you know, manage it in a in a way, but we can't. Like it's a, it's, no. it's just how we manage the conditions around it, I suppose. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing is is that the people don't understand why we can't predict it. But we have five storages in our Wadden system called that we call the Wadden storages. And they all have, you know, similar land use around them. They all have similar climate because they're so close to each other. Everything is similar. Yeah. And in any one year you'll get two of those five having a warning and then the next year it's three of the five, and it could be the same two, it could be different ones like we can, and they're all experiencing the same conditions, and they're the same water, really. It's all yeah. modern water. And so that's why if we could predict it, it would be great, but we're just not able to because the algae, they do what they want, especially if I'm not feeling well or have a holiday planned. So when you are doing a blue-green algae, so say, for instance, there is a lot of, I think you mentioned the word blooms or, you know, there's a lot of algae, how how do you issue that warning and, and what's kind of the process? I suppose you have to work with a lot of other sort of stakeholders with that. So when we issue a warning, we will notify our customers and we find the best way to do that is actually with emerging technology. So... When I first started at Godmurray Water that long ago, 20 years ago, the best way was sending a letter 
Yeah. And that's just not even close to being the best way anymore. So we now use social media, which we find is a great tool for warning people. Mm-hmm. We also have a dedicated Gomeray Water website. So as soon as a warning is issued, we have a Blue Grenagi warnings page and it has every single storage and system where we do regular sampling. Mm-hmm. It tells people if there's a warning present or not. And it also tells them the date we last updated it and when we next expect to update it. It's been great because what we do now, instead of sending a letter, we send a text message to our customers to tell them to go to the website. And the website can contain way more information and detailed information than a letter ever could, which was just a series of dot points. We also put up warning signs if it's at a storage or a place with recreation. However, we don't find that's the best way of warning people. We want we don't want people to get to like Epiloca like Ilden and then find out there's a warning and be disappointed. So that's the other thing we do is we try and promote our website and telling people to go there before they go on their holiday so that they are aware of what the situation is before they even leave. Yeah, that's great because I would imagine the health risks with the blue-green algae would be quite high. What what are some of those risks for people if they were swimming or exposed to blue-green algae? Blue-green algae have toxins and there isn't just one. Many people think that it's blue-green algae, it's just like a one thing. So there are numerous toxins in blue-green algae and they affect different parts of the body. So there are neurotoxins that target the nervous system. We've had those toxins in our lakes before and it causes people to have like numb lips and limbs and it's actually very dangerous and people need to get medical attention straight away and those toxins are very fast acting and so when somebody goes into the water and they swallow the water and ingest the toxins they can actually take five minutes before you start experiencing symptoms they're that fast it's not the most common toxin that we have present in our storages we more often see um, algae which have a toxin which actually takes five to seven days for symptoms to present themselves And so those toxins affect the liver and the kidneys and the symptoms are very similar to gastroenteritis. So when when you've got symptoms that are very similar to any other thing and they take five to seven days to present themselves, when somebody actually does go to the lake, swims and gets sick five to seven days later, they're more thinking about what did they eat last night? What did takeaway did they get? So there's probably a lot more people getting sick from blue-green algae than they actually even realise. In particular, children are more likely to be affected by the toxins in blue-green algae because when children go into the water, they don't know not to swallow it. Like when you're an adult, you realise not to do that. And also because they're children, they have a lower body weight. So the less weight you have, the less toxin you need to start experiencing symptoms. So kids in particular can be greatly affected by by And when you said ingesting, um, I went to Dartmouth this year and the pondage and I noticed – Lots of livestock and cows and everything on the edge, right on the edge. Do livestock get sick if they drink it? When warnings are issued, there's two different triggers. There's drinking water for humans yep. and recreational for humans. There are no guideline values for stock, so yep. there's been no research into it. There's no guidelines for stock, and the level at which we're issuing warnings is based on human contact. And it, it's fine. It makes sense because... We're selling the water to the farmers and they're going to be touching the water. They're going to be immersed in it. So it's not unreasonable for us to warn them at the point at which it would hurt them. The point at which it hurts 
cows is not known. And when we've issued blue-green algae warnings, we've never had any mass die-offs of stock or anything like that. You know, we do get reports when we have algae warnings of stock dying because the symptoms are very similar to other things unless a full autopsy is done and that the toxins are are checked for. It's not ever really confirmed whether it was blue-green algae or not. But so far, there hasn't been anything like that happen where mass dye occurs. And, And I guess the other thing is too is that it would become very complicated because with toxins, they can affect different animals differently. So like the level at which we would issue a warning for pigs, for instance, would be a lot lower because they're actually more sensitive animals than cows. Mm. And then horses, they're different as well. So it would make it really hard if we started to go down a route where we would be talking to people about their specific circumstance. (laughs) We'd have to be looking at what animals they have, and that information just isn't out there for anyone to do with any certainties. Yeah.